What does it take to become an elite 40K player? How do the top competitors overcome bad dice? The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War Unbroken. Insight into the game plans of the top players on the planet with your hosts, Blake Law and the Art of War Coaches. Hello and welcome to Art of War Unbroken. Champions may lose, but their spirits remain unbroken. I'm your host, Blake Law. This is episode 28 of the podcast. We are very happy you were able to join us today. They say we learned the most from our losses. That's exactly what this podcast aims to do. We are going to interview elite players who have lost one to two games in a major event. We are going to break down the mistakes they made and how they learn to move forward after those mistakes. How often have you blamed a game on bad dice? We have all done it. I've done it. Brad's done it. Nick Donavati's done it. Apparently, the internet persona that is Nurgle Matt has done it. Have I used the phrase Hot Lana on this show before? I think I have, and I sincerely apologize for that. We are headed to Atlanta, Georgia for Warzone Atlanta. Plain and simple, nothing crazy. Orcs are doing some battle in versus Grey Knights in this episode of Unbroken. Now, this is part one of the episode, so in this part, we'll be analyzing the game. We'll be talking about common mistakes, secondaries, target priority, and all the things between A and Z. In part two, we will be going into strategy, list adjustments, thing the player plans to change based on their performance in the tournament they were talking about. We're going to talk about how their army plays into your army, how it plays into the different archetypes of other armies, and you know, just talk about that elite player mindset. Now, before I introduce my co-host, I have a proposition to all the listeners out there. I want to hear your best freight fake Brad tournament achievement. I want you to give me the craziest fake thing Brad has ever done, and it will be featured in his next intro. And the winner will also receive a set of unbroken neoprene objective markers. Email me all this at blake at theartofwar40k.com, and I will give you bonus points if you are able to accurately give me the count of Adepticon wins that Brad has. Speaking of which, he has won the Michigan GT this year. He's a nine-time member of Team USA. He has won Adepticon 2012, 2013, 2024, 2052, and a lot of others to come. He has three top eight LVO finishes. He won the Armed Forces GT this year. He won ACO. He was a runner-up at GW New Orleans. He won Studs and Snotlings and is now the Prime Minister of Canada. He is currently number one in the ITC. And most of all, he is back from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brad Chester. I don't know if I'm back from the dead. I think I'm just undead. I've really achieved lichdom now. My phylactery is somewhere hidden away, and I am undying. I'm Mumra. Are you recording right now is a big question. I'm dead serious. I am indeed recording because I had Ghost Brad for the last episode in episode one, or part one of the last episode. Uh, everybody got recorded except for me because Blake yep. hates me and the Squadcast recording software decided I wasn't alive. You were dead. You were dead the whole first ep- whole first part of last episode. I was indeed. And then you guys used a seance and brought summoned me from the, the ether, the depths of the abyss, the warp. I would like to take a quick moment and give a shout out to our amazing editor, Seamus, who actually pulled a miracle. And somehow we are probably going to have an episode 27. If we do, it's all because of Seamus. It was nothing I did or Brad or anything. It's, it's all him just scrapping together the heap that was the bits and pieces of that episode. So thank you, Seamus. Hooray. Our guest today on a farm somewhere in Florida, a shirtless, handsome disciple of Nurgle, Bell some hay as the sun sets over the Atlantic Ocean. I'm talking about Big Papa. I'm talking about the most handsome man of all 40K, originator of Wacky Chaos List, current orc boy, 
He has won 11 GTs, three majors, and six best overalls in his playing career. He is the ITC's first champion of the South. My good friend, Mr. Mark Perry. What's up? I'm here. Mark, what is the most Thanksgiving-themed 40K model? Hmm. I'm tr- oh, that's hard. I think Epidemius, because he is just oh, flat out can't yeah. get out of here. And that Sweet. is very, very much how my Thanksgiving works. Oh, that, that's a good one, too. You know, you can't get out. You're stuck. You're just, you're just in the chair. You're sleeping, taking a nap. You're giving all the thanks to Nurgle. I love it. That's perfect. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about Warzone Atlanta, what what the event was like, what the terrain was like, all that kind of stuff. So, the Warzone Atlanta is a very interesting tournament. It has a lot of different ways that they do things. But also, for they me, it's very important. It's my first ever major. It's my first ever top eight at a major that also that year when I went. And it just means a lot to me, right? This is back in like 2015. And I've been, I've never, never missed it. You know, you can't, I cannot go. If I'm not there, I'm probably dead somewhere in a shrub. Well, also, let's admit that this is your home state where you are right now. You aren't actually a Florida boy. No, actually, I'm a Louisiana folk. And this is oh, a we all missed. little far from there. But, you know, the South is my territory. It's, it's my home. I think a very just, large amount just, of land. Just any, anywhere that there's no shoes worn, Mark Perry will be there. Nope, I have claimed my territory with toes of girth and strength. Mark, I actually read an article on the internet today that was talking about a parasite that's like more widespread in the South this year, and people who go shoe, uh, go shoeless actually contract it. And I immediately thought of you. I was like, I need to tell Mark about this. I don't want him to die. Well, if I die, I die. That's just how this Why works. Die? Okay, good. I just wanted to spread that. <laughs> Spread that word to you. Yep. So but what was the terrain like there at Warzone Atlanta? We had 10 pieces that were player placed. And these weren't like normal LVO where you player place in your table half. You don't even know where you're deploying yet uh, and what side is yours until after the tra- terrain is placed. So they have some pretty large ruins, forest, a lot of uh, armor containers. And you're trying to place out you know terrain where it benefits you the most and also why at the same time try not to body block. Like I'm an orc player. My priority was to make sure that, you know, if I'm getting blocked into a, you know, my half the table that one, uh, I'm okay with being there, uh, or two, uh, the line of state's working for me, but also opening up good angles for shooting, right? I can control objectives. So I was trying to make sure that, like, you know, ruins weren't on top of objectives with the walls, like, where I couldn't get inside of them or shoot inside of them. So I was a lot of times trying to place terrain like that. And that's something that's very different for Warzone is like how that player plays. It's much closer to like something like Adepticon. Or some older formats. But the biggest thing was the War Master Challenge. And that was Friday was voluntarily for anyone who was trying to win the War Master. Whoever is trying to big, get the biggest prize of St. Larry. I won the, the event. Played additional free rounds. that made it into a Super Major. But made it into different. But one, normally you go to an event uh, of a Super Major level of it. And you're going to play some rounds where you're going to just play some guys that are just kind of chilling. Just there to hang out, have a good time. And uh, they may not be the most competitive guys, but, you know, they're, they're competent places sometimes or they're just they're chilling. And uh, that, you know, can say that, hey, look, I can get some easy pairings in the first couple of rounds because, like, the number of names that I'm trying to worry about dodging or I'm don't and, like I, they're going to be challenging games are farther down the road. The chances of me drawing them in the early rounds is not there. But this what happened was it was kind of an early funnel where all the players that were trying to win that top bracket and trying to go like six and two and eight and zero oh and trying to get like top eight. We're all playing with each other three rounds earlier. So what happens is we were able to get through all the extra players and start playing each other 
from like round, I think, so like my round three onwards were all people I played against. Everyone that ended up in like the top 12. And uh, that was, it was pretty rough. Like it was, it was a sharp tank of a tournament. When you consider like when we were all just playing on top of each other and a lot of good names, a lot of big names and a lot of very competent players that are not as well known. Yeah, you had a, I mean, you had a tough round here. I mean, you played Jack, you played Honey, you played uh, Seth, you played Sean Naden, you played Fred. Yeah. And then you had, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you started off beating up on poor Adam. Yep. Uh, nice man of 40K. <laughs> it's pretty crazy, actually. I was, I was following the GT and I was looking at it and I was like, how are these guys playing already? I was like, is this a shorter event than I thought it was? I actually well, they, messaged Nick about it. Well, they did a weird like, thing. The thing is, is that effectively it was so hard to to figure out when you were doing scoring. Like when we did Meta Monday, however, you guys made it tough for us because everybody that didn't show up on the first day for the War Master, the front, basically the first three games of the tournament, uh, showed up for the weekend. But they had them scored in BCP as taking three losses for the beginning of the round of the tournament. So it was really tough to figure out who was doing what because of that. Yep. Yeah, it was kind of strange. I, I, I didn't understand it. But yeah, now you say that, it makes absolute sense when you I talk wanna, about I it. I want to talk about this terrain a little quick before we hit your roster up because you guys sent some pictures of the terrain and they were blowing my mind. Uh, so besides just putting the terrain out as far as you know, not knowing what side you were going to be on, what were the stipulations to where you could put things? So pieces of the terrain could not be set up uh, within three inches of each other and uh, three inches of a board edge. But also when you're placing them, you cannot put a piece in a table quarter that already you know has more pieces. So you, you're limited to two pieces per table quarter, and then you have two extra pieces that can go anywhere once all the table quarters at least have two. But I could yeah. put, because I mean, if I wanted to go all in in the roll, like if I was taking pew pew all the day long, and I wanted to put you in the corner, I could just put a forest or just a, a you know, like a, a crater or something in the middle of both quarters and then just hope that I won that roll off and just fire away, it looked like. Yep. So that was something that was very real when doing the player place. And it's a really interesting game inside the game when playing this type of player place terrain. One, you have to worry about people trying to do that to you. Second, you need to make sure it doesn't backfire and someone does it to you when it could happen, right? When you don't want that to happen, your opponent wants it to happen because you know you realize that, like, you know, maybe I lose the gun off or um, I get body blocked hard by some terrain peaches. And I really think that emphasizing, like, for my list is making sure that one, you're building your orc list or just any list, period, is you need to make sure it's flexible enough that you can always. Deploy in one or two small pieces, or have a lot of flexibility in deployment through, you know, either redeploys, uh, reserving mechanics, or unshootable target or unshootable mechanics. Because you can you can put the force and the craters kind of in that corner, but then you can just put the ruin far up in that corner of that quarter, right towards the middle of the board, um, and still get in there and still get blind of sight blocking. As soon as you see your opponent kind of do that. Unless both of you want the board to be like wide open, it's pretty safe and it's pretty easy to make sure that it's not going to be wide open if uh, both people do not want it so. Uh, by just counter placing, you know, every time they place one over there, you just place one piece in front of them and so forth. Nice. 
Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of a I'm I'm a novice to player place. I've gone to no player place terrain this season. Well, I mean, th- th- this is not this is the exact basically to tell to talk about what the difference is is when if you're doing normal let's say FLG player place terrain, you can only place terrain on your half of your board. So basically, your opponent can't mess with your deployment zone, and you usually have somewhere you can go for your your basically your first turn move. And also with FLG, it's four inches away. So you can't actually make something so narrow that, for instance, a skill rig can't move through. Totally agree. Or one of your big that old was knights. another reason why I didn't take kill rigs because I was worried about that happening, and I didn't want them for the Grey Knight matchup. But you know, ultimately, I still lost that matchup. So maybe I should have took the skill rigs. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! There. Um, I guess I already said broken. that. Guess what? I lost. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's not that much of. We've already seen the ending of the sixth sense. He lost a game. He's on. He's on unbroken. Hey, yep. It turned out he lost the whole time. Yeah. Oh my gosh! What a spoiler. Oh, oops. Uh, Mark, tell us your list. Let's hear about it. Let's hear about this works. Okay. This is all pre FA or pre point adjustment. So. Yep. So this is pre points with uh, the buggy change not an effect either. Um, and which, which by the way, I do love the fact that before you go into this list. This is going to be the easiest list ever to make to the adjustments because you literally make one <laughs> the scrap jets into one unit and you're done. I love that. Hey, spoilers for part two, Brad. Jeez, man. <laughs> so really what the list is, it is consisting of the war boss on war bike with brutal book cutting and the killer claw. He's a workhouse warlord. You know, you gotta have him, and he's just so handy to have. That fight on death can cause can interruptions. Why you should take him over War Trick also is he can't get bombered by like Admic planes. Admic planes can actually kill your War Trick by just bombing it with two of them and just fly off board, and you can lose your log turn one. So guys, that's a, that's a little tip going into going into your list building. Second, I have a big mech with a custom force field. I brought him with a grunt oiler and the mech job that allows him to use his grunt oiler twice. I had fifteen extra points, and I was looking at like some of the custom jobs. And honestly, like my mech is healing practically every turn, and I'm just like, I just want that better better heal for 15 points uh, with the two upgrades. And then I took free solo scrap jets, two shock jumps, um, a free man squig buggy unit. Then I took uh, two blaster jets with no upgrades. They just have um, their basic guns. They don't have super shooters. They have no force fields on them. Um, then I brought free killer cans. Uh, times two, two units of free with scorches, then two units of free uh, death copters, and to make that little extra despicey part was the knob with banner uh, with the dead shiny shooter. Oh yeah, and ten grots to splash on in the list too, because um, you gotta have it. I, 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 lo- I love to say you're like the splash on the list, or as a lot of people call it, making the list legal. Making it legal. Honestly, I almost went double outrider or something along those lines, but I'm like, eh, the 50 extra points, I couldn't figure out how to make it into like another buggy. And I'm like, eh, it's probably worth the two CP just to take the grots. <laughs> that was literally list before lists were due. I was shuffling back and forth and trying to figure out how to get, you know, do I want extra killer can or copta versus two CP? <laughs> do I want seven or five CP starting off with? Do you think it made a difference? Honestly, it. Worked out. The grots were always still good. They're great small little screens. Uh, I see it did work out because I also like starting off with seven because then like I can pop custom force field minus one to hits 
and then a fight on death with a 3d6 charge all in the first turn. So when I'm trying to make those power play, that big power turn, I have 8 CP to toy with. And um, that's really nice. Uh, it allows me to get all utility out of all four of my 2 CP stratagems when I need them. Um, and make sure I get that tem tempo and momentum started because that's really important for orcs. But the tech in this list was like, you know, I talked about that first part was like, you know, I got uh, Coptas and I got Killicans and I got a knob. So the knob of Banner has gives out plus one to hit aura that's not core locked. He's just every single unit that is the same clan as him, he gives plus one to hit. So that means all the buggies are getting plus one to hit melee. That means the cans are hitting off freeze and melee, and the coptas are hitting on twos. So one, their base sizes for the cans and coptas allowed me to get through that terrain that's three inches apart, allowed me to get those little nooks and grannies to play the mission, get on those objectives, secure them, um, while giving me flexibility in the mirror match. The cans are really, were like one of my MVP units most of all the games. And they were so cool. They're 45 point little baby dreadnoughts. And it's so nice. You're, you're doing spoilers for Brad's MVP. But I know, man. I, I was going to already spoil it. That's my job to spoil that question. Killing me. You guys are stealing on my funda. Hey. Well, I'm going to ask it again. Just hold on to that thought because I'm going to ask you again in part two before Brad does. It's just, it's a thing. It's a whole thing. Don't even worry about it. But we're talking about your game versus Fred Fortman. He was playing Grey Knights. Brad, do you happen to have that list handy to break it down here? Of course I have that list handy. Let's rock and roll this. So he's playing Grey Knights. He's playing the Exactors Brotherhood. And the Exactors Brotherhood come with the heroic intervention strat and the psychic power that for each four plus the enemy, you roll for a four plus on each enemy model in a unit. And for every four plus, they get a mortal. So he's looking for that kind of nasty horde mojo. He starts with a brother captain. Grandmaster and Nemesis Dread Knight Mojo, both of them coming with the Gatling Silencer and the Heavy Psy Cannon, standard loadout. Then he's got a Strike Squad, Interceptor Squad, so two Interceptor Squads of 10 gentlemen, two more Dread Knights in that detachment, and two Rhinos. And then we have a detachment of the Prescient Brotherhood with a Servitor Unit, a Tech Marine, Grandmaster Nemesis Dread Knight, Another strike squad, and then a five-man interceptor squad, and he's rocking that out. He didn't have as many sh shenanigans. He has the sigil, of course, for the bounce on the <coughs> Grandmaster in the Prescient Brotherhood, and I didn't see anything. Did I miss a, an upgrade on this guy? Because I didn't think I did. Nope, I did not. So that is everything that he had shenanigans-wise. That's kind of cool. It's kind of a unique list. Uh, not a whole lot. You don't see that ran very often. But the extractors, I had to actually look them up again. I was like, hold on a second. That's not prescient sword bears or rapiers. What are these guys actually doing? They're not the pregame move guys. Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about what mission y'all played and what secondaries both y'all took? Well, the mission that we played was priority targets. Um, EPKA, someone got a 45 and someone did not uh, on the secondaries. And Grey Knights took in, Fred ended up taking Bring It Down. He actually took rods at first, and I'm like, don't take rods. You, you forgot bring it down against my army. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm really dumb. I'm like, take it. <laughs> don't, don't do this to yourself. Um, then, uh, I mean, wow, well, this is an easy one. Priority targets, uh, ritual, and uh, bring it down. That is disgusting. Exactly. Like I'm like, well, someone got a 45. Easy. I end up taking engage. I considered taking stranglehold. 
but I wasn't sure how the objectives were going to get pulled out. Uh, with how we placed out the terrain, it was a really interesting setup um, for how it was going to be there. So I just took engage because I want to be safe. I didn't want to take stranglehold and say, I'm going to dominate this game on free objectives all the time. I think there's a chance if I just go second, but we're going to fight for an objective, uh, one or two objectives every turn, and sometimes I'm not going to get those points. So I ended up taking engage. Then I took, uh, I believe, assassinate or bring it down. I think it was actually bring it down. And then priority targets. Um, and for the bring it down, he only gave up 10, but I felt very, you know, I'm like, I'm very comfortable. I feel like I can probably kill, um, all 10 of your points. And that's just a solid 10 that needs to happen in game. That's a natural game thing that's going to happen is just killing your two rhinos and your dread knights. I'm right. I'm just dead. If dread knights are just making it across, you know, multiple turns and I'm not getting points off of bring it down, but I'm probably not winning this game anyway. Makes sense to me. So. Going into that, like those secondaries, it was, it was, I knew I was behind technically, but I felt pretty comfortable because I was able to pull one objective out in the open in one of the quarters. And I set up an objective in the corner and I took a reverse L or just took a reversed a L uh, barricade, not barricade, uh, Barrett words, crates. There we go. Um, and I put it where the objective was on the outside of it and it was kind of cradling it where he couldn't hold it without being in the open and be, you know, shot at from both deployment zones um, at a pretty good position. And, um, well, that worked out pretty good. But, you know, that's come down to next on you for your next questions, and that's where this game kind of goes into this interesting turn one position where, like, this happened, that happened, and so forth. When you look across the table, what do you see as, like, your priority uh, on killing? I think you kind of set up with the Dread Knights, but is there anything else you're looking at saying that has to die? Um, interceptors have to die naturally every turn a little bit, but the Dread Knights were the first thing because like, as long as they, a couple of Dread Knights are up, my sustainability is way, like it's going to go crashing down pretty quickly because each guy can kill a buggy a turn and I'm not going to kill every guy, uh, every turn. Uh, sometimes I can get two, sometimes I can get zero and that's just orc life, but also Dread Knights are very awkward at set 13 wounds. They're not 12. They're 13 because, like, I don't know why, but it makes it awkward for all my free damage shots because that practically means I'm needing to get that one extra wound down to try to do, like, eight saves at uh, free damage that mathematically kill you. But, you know, if you spike some four-ups uh, and I spike some hit rolls, damage can just not happen sometimes. Um, and normally that would say was the case. How did I, like, what, what caused me, how did this game go down? Um, was Fred Walk us through it, man. Give, give, us, give us turn one on. Let's hear it. Okay. So in the deployment, um, I end up taking the ruin, the side that's a little more fortified because I don't want Fred having it. And I set up to where, like, only see that he's going to shoot with his army. There's, like, three of my killer cans, a scrap jet, and a shock jump. He can't target the flyers because it's priority targets. And the flyers are so far back on the board where he can't get to them without teleporting. And at that point, they are on my doorstep ready to get knocked out of oblivion by... Uh, Gilly cans and the rest of my army. <laughs> and um, so Fred deployed pretty well on the line and says, okay, I have to do enough damage to slow down uh, your uh, brutality on your following turn. And so he in process killed three cans, a shark jump and a scrap jet. And then I'm stuck in a position where I'm like, I'm looking over here. There's the teleporting dread on the middle objective. And then there's a group of free dread knights with the tech marine. And uh, the lieutenant 
style character from Grey Knights. I can't remember the name of them right off the bat. But he's also the guy with their rights of war for their obsec. Brother Captain. Brother Captain. And uh, I'm going through process of my getting my combo off. It was pretty easy to get my plus one to hit off. And uh, I started comboing off. Then I kill one. I drop one down to another six wounds. Okay. Or no, I have opportunity to actually shoot the brother captain and with a scrapjet, a full health, you know, brother captain's going to get shot by scrapjet. Or do I put down enough wounds um, on this dread knight to try to put him down to where the war boss is coming up on a charge uh, to kind of put the, put, you know, just seal the game down. What happens if I just kill three dread knights turn one? I think I have the game because he cannot deal with the rest of my ramshackle army. And uh, I'm sitting there doing that decision, and I decide to not go after the captain. I decide to go ahead and what's confirm kill and support my war boss going in, um, and do some extra wounds to this um, dread knight. And actually, retrospect and seeing about how that caused all those effects, um, I tunnel vision a little bit hard on killing that dread knight versus where if I did not kill that dread knight, which is what happened actually, uh, that dread knight did not die. The war boss showed up. Brutal but cutting, killer claw and everything. He has to fail two saves, and he's dead. He does not fail two saves. He instead survives. Um, I think it's like I do a total of like eight saves, and Fred just you know the nature of four ups. Sometimes you just get well on them, and that was one of those things. I'm like, that dice really screwed me up there. But that gave him a fifteen on primary. Even if I did not kill that guy, and let's say I shot that brother captain instead. I would have been immediately a 10 away uh, from uh, Fred for his primary. He would have got a 5 versus the 15 that he got because that brother captain surviving gave two different, the last two Dread Knights, um, an additional, uh, you know, obsec, which means that, you know, one of them that's a teleporty guy came up, uh, didn't take any Dread, didn't take a lot of, I don't think he took any damage from the cans, but, you know, they were going to contest that objective. Um, if that captain died, and then the same scene with that three wound left dread knight left, because the war boss came up and did only free damage to him. If he uh if he was if we just sit there and I survived, then he gets a five point on primary. That's a different swing, right? That means that there's more fail points in the game for me to make a recovery play for the lack of killing that dread knight. Um and it was really, you know, that was one of those moments where what happens is they healed the free moons, went back to six, up a bracket. I somehow survived and only lost one blast to jet. Kept one alive. But the two Dread Knights caused a lot of problems there. But that main thing was I lost that tempo swing on that primary, and I believe this was only a 13-point game at the end of it. And you can see where that 10 points really affected there, because later, then that caused me to have to take more riskier plays that sometimes did not work, uh, because I was behind on those points. Yeah, and you kind of hit it on the head when you started the episode saying, you know, he has basically a max secondary, so where you're going to win this game is in the primary. So yep. everything you're saying makes complete sense. Yep, and it was it was very much of like we, we were having a great technical, tactical game the entire time, but I know I'm behind and I'm trying to think, swing for the fences. I'm trying to get some of that control back. You know, i got to spike some damage. i got to spike some charges. And... um Missed a couple in the late turn. And the last turn, we were playing, that game was real until the last turn. Um, because I had to keep rolling, you know, I'm like, I'm like you're going to get that 45. He got, I think, six points on Purifying Ritual 
turn one, I'm just like, oh, this is not good. This ain't good. I can't let you do that again. No. <laughs> so, questions. I'm in charge now. Answer. I am waiting for, well, Brad is waiting for the Bradening Hour or the Brad Show or Brad Gone Wild, after as sometimes we call hours. it. Brad After Dark, baby. Yeah, that's that's what we're waiting on. I, I, I build up momentum. I only have, I'm an old man. I only have enough cardio for basically half an episode so I can do either one half of either side. And I use the Brad Ding is when I focus my mojo. Except for last time he focused all his mojo on not recording. It was it was pretty awesome. He uh <laughs> I think he talked more than usual and was completely not even heard. So it was it was pretty fantastic. It was great. I, I was the ghost. But yeah, that makes absolute sense, man. So you had like one turn where you made a pretty a pretty large uh, error that cost you 10 points. And honestly, when you lose a pace like that, as you said, you know, you, you really start playing from behind. You have to make crazier plays. It maybe cost you some points somewhere else down the road. And that three point difference is probably a lot less. Basically, even a five point game, like if you and I are playing right now and you, you get that initial five points on me and the game and you look at, you always have to look at the game state when I say the game state, I mean like what's happening here, but also what the projected outcome is. So if we're staring at the board and you do absolutely nothing different and all of a sudden you're going to win 85 to 80, now I have to make up that five points, which means I have to extend out. I can't just stand my side of the board and strangle hold and rods and do nothing. I have to actually go out and get those points. And if you have to extend out, that means that your opponent gets the option to leverage all of their firepower, all of their melee into you. And a lot of times they can do it from behind a wall, which is the worst place you want to be is basically on your opponent's side of a wall, getting shot and charged, and then not getting to leverage your guns back at them. So playing from behind is just difficult uh, in every game. And you know what I mean? It doesn't matter what the matchup, you never want to be playing from points behind right away. Totally yeah. Agree. Makes absolute sense. Um, Mark, you have anything else for us on the episode? So I think I want to say about that whole idea of when you're playing behind you. Talk about the, you know, I was saying that, you know, start making more plays and more fences. There's two ways to handle that. One, you start playing for those obvious, you go for the fence now. Second, um, is you play back a little bit and you try to minimize the lead that your opponent has and keep it to the smallest amount. And this is where some armies. Uh, do better at this versus others is they can wait to the last minute, try to sneak in a win, right? Like Elder, they can get behind them, and they have great recovery speed because how fast they are, how consistent they are, and so forth. So they can make those last minute, you know, plays at the, you know, turn five that puts them back in the lead. And if your opponent can't read that happening or can't do anything to stop that from happening, you can take that lead, but you can take from being behind and swap that on your opponent. Then your opponent realizes actually in two turns, he's behind. Um, and that can cause problems. Versus where orcs, I have experimented and played with a lot of different orc builds, a lot of different ways that army wants to play. And it does not play that type of style, that very Eldar reactive, wait for the last minutes, jumps out in all the right objectives, be all the right spots in the bottom of the turn to squeeze out a one-point, two-point win. Orcs are not consistent enough um, in how they just function, right? They want to just be doing, they want to be active all the time. They want to be making charges, they want to be shooting. All Every single unit wants to be doing that in some way. 
Therefore, you can take that insane amount of power that they have and get chances to roll it every single time. I think Stan, Steve Pampreen put it one of, the, one of the best ways, and I like. I don't prefer this way of playing, but I think the Orc player very much does play this way. As image, you have a bunch of slot machines, and you are trying to keep rolling for that good roll of damage. You're trying to spike that stuff, and you're going to have some really weird whiffs and some really bad whiffs, but across the board, when you can combine but across the game, uh, every turn of interactive with your opponent uh, and getting to do those rolls, you can get an advantage off of that, and you need to do that with orcs because sometimes miracles just happen. You've just got to have faith in the Mork and the Gork, and you're going to, here we go, and you made that charge. We got it. We're back in control, baby. Who's the house in this situation? Like in your analogy, because um, the, the house is going to win. You know, you're, you're paying to the house, buddy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the house is Brad. You're paying Brad uh, every time you pull one of those slot all, machines. All the money comes back to Brad, I baby. Mean, it explains why he's still alive. Yep. You're, fund- you're funding Brad's life. He's getting his stem cells. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's just a, a PSA for all you out there. When you go to LVO, pull, some, pull a slot machine for Brad. Yep. That's a, he needs it. All right. Uh, I actually have, uh, we have a Q&A that we do every episode. This is part of the War Room. If you're a member of the War Room, you can go on to our premium service. You can ask questions for our guests in advance, and they will do their best to answer it. You can go to theartofwar40k.com, subscribe to the War Room, and jump right in with all the questions in the world. Mark, we got a couple for you here. One of them, one of them is basically all of part two. So I'm going to ask you it, then I'm going to immediately say, save it for the Brad Hour. Says, what does a new orc army look like post balance data slate? Save it part two. We're saving that part. That's that's all part two, man. If you're listening, tune in because we're gonna go. We're gonna go into it big time. The second question is, what do you foresee the hardest matchup is going to be with the new orc list? I think Grey Knights is still number one, and figuring out how to crack that code for Grey Knights without losing everyone else uh, is a very hard thing right now to do. I think. One of the things that would make adjustments, maybe like I took scorchers on my killer cans. If I had rockets on them, that would help a lot more. Um, and making sure that you know you can do the extra damage for it. But also, I think there's two very different ways the play works. And I think the truck boy more super aggressive list, like let's say like Seth Piper was playing, and uh, Lucas from I think Washington State was also playing very similar, you know, very infantry vehicle builds. Or just transports, and they're just coming at you at 100. I really like those ways. I think those ones have very different matchups versus the rest of the speed log list. And let's say the speed log list, you know, you have the new speed freaks army for now, and you still have free Buddhas. And I think both of those have very different bad matchups. I actually think that the foot list beats the speed log list. I every time I've played against it, and I'm like done a couple practice games against myself at home, and I'm like. If I am playing the infantry list, I don't think my my speed log list can actually win the game. It's all I was trying trying to look for plays. I'm just like, if I'm playing at 100%, I'm like, I think I just lose. Uh, the body block is real. Mass obsec. Um, and orcs are actually really just, you know, when you start stacking up all their different abilities, they can kill buggies pretty consistently in close combat. Definitely with like beast snagger boys, with goths, getting that strength six and Teslas. Ooh, so tasty. But uh, it's Grey Knights for Speedwalk, and I think for the foot list, I think Drakari are the hardest thing because the foot, li- the more foot truck boy lists don't have ways to pop transports super easily. And um, 
I think that's the two. I think that's the two hardest matchups for both of those styles. Give us one spoiler for part two. Are you going to be switching to the war bike list with the Octarius, or are you going to stick with uh, a minimal buggy uh, or a, the new buggy plane list? I will, I will stab you if you try to put this stuff in the first episode instead of the second. Just one word answer. This is how we get ants. You want ants? <laughs> um, I don't know what I'm staying with too right now. I think I'm going to do both. Test out in the meta. I like both formats. Maybe I tr- juggle between the two of them. Uh, a lot of testing needs to be done. Everyone, uh, Mark is going to get stabbed. I, I might get stabbed. I don't know. I'm pretty. I'm pretty shifty. I might not get stabbed. So, I need to have the arm link to get to me. I will. I'm vicious. I'm like a honey badger, baby. I've seen. Um, I've seen what you can do, but I also know if you can't run for more than ten feet. Yeah, but I'll everybody you. pray for unbroken. <laughs> Just pray for us, man. We're we're in trouble. <laughs> Mark, thanks for joining us. I am looking forward to Brad Gone Wild in part two. You will get a very skimpy t-shirt for joining us in that part. Hey. So, yeah. This, thanks for coming, man. We'll talk to you in part Bye. two. Later. Make sure to check out our other shows, The Art of War, now vanilla kiwi flavored with the boy king, John Lennon, and his co-host, Mr. Steve Joel, the kiwi oh, boy. Guys, remember to be cutting, but very don't. <laughs> and also the art of war down under with of course the late and great amicamillary we of course are the art of war pistachio the flavor you didn't know you liked till you tried us thanks for listening check us out in part two like what you just listened to check out art of war and the art of war down under podcast on the competitive 40k network the art of war 40k.com 